What a world we are living in. We've had COVID, war in Europe, and this week the passing of the reigning sovereign. The world is changing. This morning we were having a chat about that, and um, um, I think it was Yvonne, you were saying, uh, no, it was Jeanette, you were saying, with the passing of these three significant ladies, something has been lost in the world. You mentioned voices, Jeanette. Yeah, Olivia Newton-John. Olivia Newton-John. And that really impacted me as I was sitting here thinking about worship this morning because voices going from the world is something that we can miss so easily, that we can long to regain back, can't we? That we can desire to ascribe towards. We are living in a world that's changing. And in what you said, Jeanette, and in what I'm hearing out in the community, I hear that new voices need to rise up. Voices that are ready to proclaim hope. Voices that are ready to proclaim the good news. And here in our story this morning from the book of Judges, we see a world that is changing for Israel. We see that they were under oppression. We see that they had come out of Egypt and out of that slavery and into the promised land. But yet, what did they find? They were still under oppression. They were still struggling. A prophet, a nameless prophet came out. And did he have good news? No. He came to chide Israel. Because, chi- because Israel had lost its way and the children of God needed to be brought back. I know there's a lot of people in the life of the church today who see the church in a similar way. Who think maybe everything that's happening in the world today and everything that is happening certainly within the church may be as a result of that. Dear friends, I choose to not think about it in those terms. If that is God's will, then that's fine. That is God's will. But I choose to think about it in this way. We are living in a world now where we are seeing those challenges in front of us much more clearly than we have in the past. And with that, we have an opportunity. We have a challenge to step up. Part of that challenge is to raise those voices. To bring back that hope, to step in where silence has now taken place and we can come in and be that voice of justice and love, that presence of God. Because you know what? I believe that Jesus was a rebel. Not a rebel in the sense that he was rebelling against whatever for no reason. But because he was a rebel in the name of justice. Because he saw the system of his day that was broken and that didn't work and said, you know what? This is why we need a new voice. A voice that had been prophesied. A voice in the wilderness that had come out and spoken. Friends, we are doing missional readings of the Old Testament. And what that means is that we look at that context. We try to understand it. We try to understand what's happening there. What God is doing and how God is speaking to those people. And we want to take the best out of that. And we want to look at our lives and say, God, can you do that here? 
where we looked at Joshua and Jericho and we saw people worshipping God and walls falling down, we said, God, can you do that here? What are the walls in our lives that need to come down? Where we looked at, um, at Deborah last week and Barak and we saw Barak stepping up and saying, Deborah, I'm not going without you. We said, God, what is it that we need? How can we go? What is this collaborative leadership going to look like? And today, we look at Gideon. I said to you last week, Barak wasn't afraid. That's not why he called on Deborah. It was because, unlike you and me, he didn't have access to Kurong and a million translations of the Bible to go to. Instead, this woman represented the word of God and he wanted her to go before him. Just the same way that we want the word of God to go before us. But Gideon was afraid. And I think when we are challenged with mission in a changing world, when we are challenged in a world where voice of justice is diminishing, voice of hope, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be scared. And I hope that from this story, we can be challenged in the same way that Gideon was when the angel said, am I not sending you? I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray and commit this time to the Lord. Lord, you are good and your love (coughs) endures forever. We ask that you be present with us in this time as we gather around your word. Speak with us, meet with us, Father God, as you did with Gideon in that moment. And we ask for you to lead us And let us hear your voice in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Gideon was there. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiziarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Does everybody understand that? What was happening there? So a wine press was a big old pit. Now you may have seen images of where they do the wine pressing in Italy or in Adelaide, and, and they have a big old kind of barrel above the ground and everybody jumps in and they're jumping up and down, having a lovely time, getting all messy and icky and everything. Uh, well, in Israel, that was under, in the ground. It was a pit, it was a hole that was dug in the ground with a channel so that the um, liquids could be collected into a barrel in another chamber. And he was threshing the wheat. So he was trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. I want you to remember that. He was separating the wheat from the chaff. The good stuff from the rubbish that couldn't be used. He was separating it. He was setting it aside. This is really important. Because that's a theme throughout the book of Judges. You see, in the book of Judges, Israel is being judged because they're up to no good. So God calls people who are wizened. And who are given this authority, this role, not to exercise human wisdom, but God's wisdom. To arbitrate in situations between the good stuff and the rubbish. Sometimes that's people, sometimes that is circumstances. So this is a theme that is occurring throughout the book of Judges. And what do we see here? We see that Gideon, before being called by God, is already exercising this. Isn't that amazing? 
He is already doing it. And I believe God called him in this moment because he was doing it, but he was doing it badly. Do you know how one separates the chaff from the wheat? You toss it up in the air and the wind catches the rubbishy stuff, the chaff, and blows it away. Well, if you're in a big hole, there's not a lot of wind, is there? Do you know what I mean? So he's there tossing the the wheat and the chaff and it's all mixing up and falling together. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, what are you doing? Doesn't it make sense? See, this is what I mean. For us to understand God's message here, we need to understand that context. What's, what's actually going on there? Who here has chaffed wheat before? Anybody? <laughs> no. <laughs> our, our wheat comes pre-chaffed, as it were. And, and it comes white, does it not? In Latin America, wheat is not white. Well, flour is not white. It turns out that they bleach it. Yeah. For us, it's grainy, brown color. Maybe more like the, the kind of stuff you would have seen in um, videos of the Anzacs with the wheat cookies and things of that nature. It, it looked like that. That's what I remember. That was the wheat that I grew up with. It was not made to look like it was something that was supposed to be pristine and untarnished. It was actually natural and organic looking. And here, this man is taking it and he's mixing it in with the rubbish. So the angel of the Lord comes and says to him, what are you doing? Now, where does this take place? Um, Firstly, apologies. I showed you a version of this map last week and I had mislabeled one of the territories. So that territory that I had labeled as Ephraim was actually Benjamin. Benjamin. Um, And then the next territory over to the north was Ephraim. And I wanted to show you all of this because I wanted to show you that the region in which this story takes place is really quite large by comparison to the rest of the book of Judges. It's really large. Why is that important? Because you see, what was happening here in this time is that we see a change in the narrative of Israel. Hear me, Pimpama, as I say this to you. We see a change in the narrative. God took a very localized situation with Deborah and Barak within a few dozen kilometers to expanding that out to a few hundred kilometers. And then it goes even wider with Samson. And then it goes wider with Samuel. And then it goes wider with Chronicles. Do you see where I'm getting at here? When we read the Bible missionally, we see that God starts locally right here. He hits us where we live. But he doesn't limit to that. Doesn't Jesus say to the disciples, begin in Jerusalem. And then you're going to go to Judea, to the wider country. Then to Samaria, to your enemies. Until you reach the ends of the earth. God's mission begins here. In a very small place. Sometimes a prideful place, but (laughs) a small place nevertheless. But it doesn't end here, dear friends. This is a very Western map. You got some 
well-defined lines. Those lines are actually influenced by the geography. Because the Bible says the land of Manasseh went from this river to this mountain range. Ephraim went from this lake to this spring. But that's not really the case. Jesus of the tribe of Judah was born in what would have been the land of Naphtali. See, it's not like we think of borders where if you're from Logan City, you're a Logan City person, you're a Brisbaneite, you're a Brisbane person, you're an Adelaide person, you're an Adelaide. No. The land and the geography dictated a certain aspect, but the people another. And they would go and cross these borders and boundaries as God commanded them to. Sometimes that was for good. Sometimes, while God was in control, he allowed for things to happen that weren't so good. We read of Midian. Midianites are from Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Hundreds of kilometers south. And yet they had come all the way up there. And you know what they were doing? Your older Bibles say they were raiding. That's quite an accurate depiction. They were desert pirates coming in and stealing and raiding and taking things from the fledgling tribes of Israel. That's not to say that they were without guilt because the fledgling tribes of Israel did the same thing to the people who were there beforehand. (laughs) It was a pattern within their society of how they do things. The black van that I drive, I love it. It gets my family around, it's got turbo, and I'm driving down the freeway. It just makes me feel that little bit more, mm, you know. It doesn't compare with the Mustang, which is my future vehicle, of course, um, but <laughs> seven-seater Mustang, what a horrible thought. Um, <laughs> No, I can't. That's right. It's for me. Um, (laughs) What did I say about this prideful heart? And I went to buy that car, and I nearly had that poor salesman in tears. He'd come to me with one price, and I'd come back to him with another, and I'd barter him down, and my proud Latin blood was flowing red that day, I'll tell you what. And he was there, and... And he comes along and he says, no, you can't do this to me. I'm half Italian. And I'm like, you're half Italian. You know why I have to do this to you. Um, So I turned his reason into an excuse to do it even more. And then the worst part of it was I got him down really, really, really low. And he's like, he had to keep going backwards and forwards and negotiating. And you know what it's like with these salesmen. You know what it is. They say that they're hurting, but they're not. They're still taking away a fair bit into their back pocket. And then I got the, uh, the upgrade package after we had done the negotiation. And he said to me, he said, but you took me down so far, why did you get that repair? Because I could. Because I could. Now this is what I mean. It may seem unchristian or ungenerous (laughs) to take part of the man's commission, but it's part of the culture, it's part of the way how these things were operating, and that is how the Israelites had gone into Canaan and that is how the Midianites were now coming into Canaan. So let's, let's not read an oppressive, hyperly strong kingdom coming in and colonizing. Let's instead read this as it were. Let's think of, of um, uh, Papua New Guinea in the 1800s, these warring tribes 
competing for land and resources and coming together. And one of those tribes looking to the Lord and asking for help and succor. That's the situation we find Gideon in. He was afraid of these raiders. So he went to go and separate the chaff from the wheat in a hole hiding in the ground. And he was amazed when the angel said to him, you know, you are going to go and you are going to do great things. He, what does he call him? He says, you great warrior. Now, can you imagine how this guy would have felt? Sitting cowardly in this hole? What are you talking about? Now, I want to highlight for you something that happens here. We have what we call the theophanic angel. Theophanic angel. A theophany is when God reveals himself. Now, here in the book of Judges, happens a couple of times in Genesis, happens a couple of times in Samuel and Chronicles. Angels appear, yes? But it's not really an angel. We get that concept that it's an angel because in the Greek translation, the word there is literally angelos. But angelos, just like the word demos, demon, means messenger. Yeah? So that's all that it means. So let's not give that more meaning than it's meant to have. Let us instead understand that this person, and I'm going to say person, right? There's, there's no gender um, article that's used here. So this person is meant to be simply a vehicle for the message of God to come forward. So the author keeps changing between the voice, hey, we have that word again, the voice of the messenger and the voice of God. And he can do that. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I've had people in my life who have come and they've appeared out of nowhere and they've said something and that word has cut me to the bone. That is the word of God. Yes, he used a flawed instrument of a human being to do it. But that was the word of God cutting me deep. And it changed my life. So here we find the Lord responds to Gideon. I will be with you and I will strike down all the meteorites leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. And then we change the speaker. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand and fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. One of the words... In the Bible, for angels, one of the names is seraphim. Have you heard that one before? Seraph, seraphim. That means burning one. So there's this clear connotation between fire, sanctuary, holiness, sacrifice, and the presence of God. God was there during the Welsh Revival in the early 1900s. People would be riding their horse and cart down a road just like this and they would see the church looked like it was on fire on the inside. And they'd pull in and go look and see if the church was actually on fire. No, it wasn't. People were worshipping the Lord. 
But from the outside, they saw supernaturally what looked like flames burning on the inside. This is not the account of a missionary in a far-flung land that did not understand what was going on. This is in Wales, in the UK. And it was attested to time and time again. This one particular church on the road to... Oh, I forget the name of the, the city now. Cardiff. That would seem that in the middle of the night it would light up. They would have all-night prayer visuals in this church. That's what was happening. People were beckoning the presence of God into that place. Not for one hour on Sunday morning, not for two hours during the week, but all night. Why? Because they were desperate, desperate for revival. I'm not suggesting that we do something like that here, but what I am saying is that, dear friends, when we call upon the presence of God, let us not be surprised if it comes as burning fire and the presence of God burning up all that which is inside us. All that which was wrong, mistaken, and instead we are refined and purified. And what comes forward is like gold, missional gold. In the Old Testament, there's something there about painting some of our heroes as if they were stupid. Have you noticed this? Like they'll be standing there looking at angels, Lot, Abraham, and they won't recognize it. There's this wonderful song, um, Entertaining Angels. And it reminds us that there are times in which angels can appear before us and we cannot recognize them at all. God's message can be there and we may not recognize it. But I think it's interesting how in the Old Testament in particular, there's this turn of phrase like, oh, and then suddenly this person realized what was going on. Like as if they were dumb because we were allowed to perceive and understand what was going on, but they weren't. It's a wonderful Middle Eastern turn of phrase that's happening there. And what it's trying to do is it's trying to show us how God is on our side. Yes. And how his revelation came to those people in a gradual form. That's what they're trying to say. They're not saying that they're dumb. Moses was not dumb. Gideon was not dumb. Instead, in that moment, whatever was going on in Gideon's life prevented him from being able to see that. And I think that's something we can all relate to. So he realized that the angel of the Lord was there and he exclaimed, Sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He was afraid. He had been afraid of the Midianites. Now he was afraid of God. He was afraid that in his cowardice and in his lack of response, God had now revealed himself to him. And from that would come. A great punishment. But the Lord said to him, peace, shalom, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. And there it is called, the Lord is peace. Friends, do you see the irony of this moment? The Lord appeared to Gideon not, so that Gideon would usher in a period of peace, but so that Gideon would be enticed to go to war. 
This is a dichotomy that doesn't exist for that culture. For us, it seems paradoxical, incongruous. Doesn't work, does it? But that's because we have a human understanding of peace. Friends, I want to challenge you this morning to think of God's peace. God's peace is the planets orbiting around the sun and their moons orbiting around them at such equilibrium that even a small change could cause life to be destroyed. God's peace is the seasons coming in and out, seasons of growth and manifestation of life, and seasons where things die and pass away. That is God's peace. God's peace is calling us to be a people who are ready to walk out there and meet any challenge that he has, but not in our strength, because our strength is limited in his strength. Because he has the power to do all things. This, I believe, is the peace that Gideon is talking about here. The book of Judges is written in the voice of someone who saw these events and wrote about them in the future. We have that here. The next sentence is, and this place goes on to be called, the Lord is peace to this very day. That's actually true. (coughs) To this very day, there is a hilltop. In Arabic, it is called Allah ik salam. You may notice that I didn't say that in Hebrew, but in Arabic, because it's part of Palestine. Again, paradoxical, incongruous to our idea of peace, but God's peace being something so very different that maybe we can't fully comprehend it. Dear friends, I want to conclude with the words Jesus spoke to the disciples as he sent them out into this very same hill country where Gideon fought. But he didn't send them out with swords. He didn't send them out to war. He sent them out instead to proclaim his goodness armed with the gospel. He said to the 72, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. But when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. And if not, it will return to you. He is telling the disciples to go forward in boldness. Because the mission of God had changed in that time from Gideon to Jesus. It was no longer about claiming that land and being victorious warriors in the name of Jesus. It was about being men and women of peace. God's peace. A life-changing peace. And I invite you, 
invite myself, invite anyone who is listening to take up this challenge as well. Let us ask ourselves the question, where can we go and be promoters of God's own peace? Where can we go and share God's peace? Let us conclude with a word of prayer. Father God, we read these passages and we are so challenged. Because like the Israelites in the time of the judges, we live in a world that looks at you, that looks at your people and rejects them. That so often we find there is pain and hurt and injustice in this world and yet we desire your peace. We desire your love. Father, be present with us as we continue to express that love, as we continue to climb higher, to seek to express who we are in Christ our Lord, to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, to our workmates, to our classmates in any situation. And Father, where we find we are rejected, let us be reminded that it is you they reject, not us. Where we are embraced, let us be reminded that they are embracing your love and presence found within us. And where we are treated with indifference, let that peace come back to us with the knowledge, Lord God, that we are to take it and share it further afield. So we thank you for this morning and we ask you to continue to speak to us in all these things in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.